Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is The Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every week to defend and to uphold and to promote public education. Now, we give you a definition most weeks, not every week, but most weeks, because we are very different public education people from private education people. Public education has to be to be public, public in purpose and outcome, should also be public in access. That is, our schools in the public system should be open to every child, whatever their background. As well as that, a public school and public facilities should be public in ownership and control, no public-private partnerships, thank you very much. And it should be the only one that is publicly funded because it's the only one that can be publicly accountable. And our governments, if they were genuine democratic governments, should provide a first-rate public education for every child in Australia. We know they don't. And we know in these latter days of privatisation and globalisation, public education facilities are on the back foot But there are some bright rays because globalisation and privatisation are having a few problems. They are like a theocracy uh, around the world. They have the uh, they have doctrines and they have people who tell us what we must believe, and we don't all agree. There are um, some protestants amongst us. And we have a website, and if you want to find out more about us and what we're on about and what we think about what's happening in the world of education, you can go to our website at www.adogs.info. And here is our press release 668. It's the report of the inquiry into the Independent Public Schools Initiative from Western Australia. And this is an example of the failure of the independent public school concept in Australia. Because, listeners, to be fair and equal, public education requires a centralised administration. In the 19th century, public education in this country not only succeeded, and Australia was behind the whole of the rest of the world in 1900 in putting its children into school, It only succeeded in all the colonial states of Australia because the administrators of the various public education systems of education realised the following. 
One, they could only educate all the children and protect and train all the teachers and offer a career structure to teachers, headmasters and inspectors. And finally, have an accountable, efficient and effective administration and be the only recipients of public money if they centralise their administration. And they did. We had centralised administrations full of or manned by people who had been in classrooms, who had had career structures, who knew what they were talking about, who knew about education and who were crackerjack administrators and who understood that they were answerable to the parliament and to the people of Australia. We had true accountability through our centralised administrations. Freeman Butts recognised this when he visited Australia in the 1950s and he compared our superior system to the, the devolved systems of England and America where local authorities were responsible for education. But on the other side of the coin, in Australia and in fact all around the world, the wealthy and most particularly now the wealthy hedge funds, the really wealthy people who want to make profits out of insecure parents, and the promoters of privatisation, which include the religious education systems, not only have demanded privileged access to the public treasury, they have continually criticised the centralisation of the public school system. At the same time, dear listeners, as the Catholic education system and the Lutheran system and other systems have been centralising themselves. But they have been centralising to form states within the state. A public education system is answerable to our elected representatives through the minister. Now, these uh, school systems have systematically undermined and in some cases, like in Victoria, they've actually taken over the centralised bureaucracies and wrecked them. Victoria in particular has suffered very badly from the devolution fad because that's what it is. But the latest attempt to privatise public education is the idea of a fully devolved system with so-called independent public schools, which very quickly could become, as in America, charter schools. And we'll talk about these shortly. But the Western Australian experiment has failed the student outcomes test. It's time to call a halt and think again. We need to centralise the public system and stop state aid to the private sector. Now, the rest of this uh, press release is devoted to what other people have said about the failure. The chairman of the report of the inquiry into the Independent Public Schools Initiative had this to say in his foreword. The Independent Public Schools Initiative embodies this concept of devolution for the Western Australian public education system and it's following the lead of education systems with greater autonomy found in Victoria, England and the United States of America. However, in any devolved system, and particularly in education, local decision makers need to be supported 
by central office guidance and be subject to appropriate levels of accountability. Support and accountability must balance autonomy so it does not become abandonment. And how many of the principals in our public schools have felt abandoned when they are given a budget with too little money in it? The strength of any new initiative in public education must be measured by the effect it has on student incomes. And the report's finding on the student incomes is damning. In line with national and international research, there's no evidence that the Independent Public Schools Initiative has had a positive effect on student incomes. The introduction of the IPS initiative, that's the Independent Public School IPS, has had no significant effect on the academic or non-academic performance of students, including those with additional needs. The Independent Public School Initiative has not had any discernible effect on the outcomes of the students at independent public schools themselves, nor non-independent public schools for both students with additional needs and those without. That's on page 1 and on page 27. Now, this finding is all the more stunning because the report was prepared by a bipartisan committee of two Liberal MLAs, including the chairman of the committee, two ALP members and an independent Liberal member. So these independent schools in Western Australia failed to improve the student results, according to this report. And the findings are, in fact, a major blow to the coalition government in Canberra and those around the country because they've made increasing school autonomy a central policy plank. And several recent overseas studies have also found that it really has very little impact and perhaps it, it causes great trouble. It is certainly unfair and causes greater inequality if you uh, set these independent public schools up. It cites the report, cites evidence provided by the Department of Education that shows that no substantial difference in the overall attendance, no major change in the attendance rate. The NAP plan reading results in years five, three, five and nine, uh, if they improved, it was for both kinds of schools. But where NAP plan reading results declined in year seven, it was more evident in the IP schools. Uh, so it's all very interesting. If you want to find out more about this, then you can go to our website and go to this press release and uh, read what Trevor Cobald from Save Our Schools has to say. Trevor used to work for the Productivity Committee and he is a facts and figures man. But as well as that, Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd have put something up, up on a blog that is run by a man called John Menadou. And uh, they have this to say. And I'll get Robert to read this. Thank you very much, Jean. You're listening to the DOGS program, the Defence of Government Schools, D-O-G-S. That's what we do. And Jean's quite right. There's been a bit of interest in this whole independent schools matter over in Western Australia because it's been going for a while and now the data's in. And this is what Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd have to say. School education in Australia has been invaded from the West. 
In 2010, Western Australia added its contribution to free market orthodoxy, actually I call it free market theology, by declaring its public schools would be given greater control over staffing and budgets. From 2010, an increasing number have become independent public schools. Well, you can see, you can hear the mantra, can't you? Yes, choice, freedom, greater control. Yes, anyway, like many reforms, inverted commas, over the last few decades, it's, it's been a certain resonance. It has a certain resonance and indeed was initially welcomed by a large number of schools. Because who doesn't like choice, who doesn't like freedom, and who doesn't like control? Additional money to start up, but not to continue. Anyway, so they were quite, you know, everyone was happy at the beginning, and school principals have always complained about excessive bureaucratic controls of their schools. Anyway, in Western Australia, the independent public schools has been Australia's contribution to the move for greater autonomy for public schools. Um, I would suggest that Kennett did this with Schools of the Future back in the 90s, but they're up to, up to their usual tricks in Western Australia at the moment. Anyway, variations of this whole independent public school thing exist in various guises in most other states, but not always promoted by conservative governments. When in opposition, Tony Abbott promised the rollout of independent public schools across Australia. After all, as his later education minister, that's Christopher Pine, was to claim, such a system overseas was improving student outcomes. Um, a claim, by the way, that was deemed to be unsubstantiated by the ABC Fact Check Unit back when it existed. Rubbish. It's rubbish. Well, that's right. I mean, it was deemed to be unsubstantiated. Another word for that, and Gene's quite right, is rubbish. Look, in common with much of the neoliberal agenda for education, the evidence for independent public schools was either never produced or was quite easily dismissed. Those who might otherwise support such autonomy for public schools had their doubts, including, by the way, Ben Jensen, previously with the Grattan Institute. Even at the time, the OECD was at best ambivalent about claims that autonomy would improve student outcomes. You see, I think the idea is if you give people choice and control and autonomy, then everything gets better always. But, of course, that has proven not to be the case. But to continue with the words of Chris Bonner and Bernie Shepherd, they say, um, and there were early cautions that actually came out of Western Australia. In 2011, the Western Australian Auditor General warned that the program would create a two-tier education system. In the same year, a Curtin University report showed that the policy would do little to improve student learning outcomes. The author of this report said that the evaluations that have taken place afterwards around the world would seem to suggest it's actually stacking up problems. And to go on, he said, we'd be better looking at that now rather than waiting two or three years down the line to deal with the problems that may appear further down the track. Well, guess what? That was in 2011, and now we're further down the track. This is now 2016. And we are now indeed in a mess. A review of the Education and Health Standing Committee of the Western Australian Parliament has just found that the Independent Public Schools Initiative has exacerbated existing inequalities in the public education system, both perceived and actual, and is in fact reinforcing, guess what, a two-tiered system. As the ABC reported on August 15, it meant that more capable schools receive more benefits and less capable schools fall farther behind. Remote and hard-to-staff schools are particularly disadvantaged as a result. Now, while independent public schools 
and I quote, benefited from being able to recruit the best teachers, close quotes, this came at the expense of non-IPS schools, which were then forced to accept teachers rejected by the independent schools who were less suitable for the school environment and had less experience. On student achievement and reports noted, it's also too early to tell whether the IPS initiative has created the conditions which will lead to improved student outcomes into the future. Well, is it really too early, says Chris and Bernie? The Independent Public Schools Initiative is just another component of a 30-year-old experiment in choice and competition in schooling. An experiment that, that research and reviews have shown to have failed to lift student achievement while at the same time making the whole problem of equity worse. They just never wanted to know why the 19th century people were so successful. They never, ever wanted public education a lot of these people because the wealthy have never, ever wanted to pay taxes for the education of other people's children. The private school sector have the theology that the only children that really, really matter are their own children. It's a very, very selfish doctrine. Mm, indeed. Now, the problem facing public education, schools and systems is that every attempt to create greater autonomy ends up becoming what is functionally a zero-sum game. And I'm going to come back to this. Some schools, especially those with already existing advantages, so if you're starting ahead of the curve, you get a benefit. Others face compounding challenges. If you're behind the curve, you're going to get worse. All that the Independent Public Schools Initiative seems to be showing is that public schools are perfectly capable of becoming yet another part of a problem we steadfastly refuse to address. Now, I would say the same thing, because for me, they talk about free market economics and all that sort of stuff. I call it free market theology, and I think it gets back to what Jean just said, the idea that really... Do we want all these poor people being educated? Really do we want to have that to happen? And if that has to happen, then maybe we can pay as little as we possibly can just to keep them off the streets so they don't become criminals or something like that. The other part of this is you know, the free market theology. Now, there is an argument to say that if you have two milk bars on either side of the street and one milk bar is a nice milk bar with friendly people and everything's well stocked and they're very energetic and nice and then the milk bar on the other side um, is a bit rubbish. Um, the people there are quite lazy and rude and abusive and they obviously don't like running milk bars. Then the principle of the free market theology means that one milk bar will succeed and one milk bar will fail. And that's the, the, was the dead hand of the market. I mean, you know, one will do well, one will not do well. Not be dead. And they've taken that principle. They've taken that principle and said, well, this works, the, <laughs> the dead hand of the market. We're now going to impose this dead hand on the education of, of the children of the nation of Australia. And all I have to say to anyone who was willing to listen, and that's certainly you, my, my dear listeners, or our dear <laughs> listeners here on The Dogs, all we're really saying is that that's not an appropriate way to run an education system. Well, they're trying the very, dead very hand hard. of the market just doesn't work that way because if you say, oh, well, okay, there's a child that's not succeeding at school, well, they can just be left to fail. They can just be left to fail, and like the milk, cloud, the milk bar that wasn't very efficient is, is left to close. No, no, 
it's worse and than so that. you have well no, I, I know it's worse than that thing but in basic principles the basic principle of the free market is not appropriate you cannot certainly in good conscience allow a child to just fail because a milk, a milk bar may close but no one dies but we're here talking about schools failing, and we're not talking about schools actually failing. We're talking about people making schools fail so that they can be taken over by profiteers. We're talking about schools being actually attacked. The public schools of Australia have been attacked since they were started in 1848 by the religious groups who have been trying to prove, first of all, that they were godless and one thing and another. But uh, we're now in the end game, I believe, with these privatisers, accepting that there is now a questioning. You're right, it doesn't work. The market doesn't work in essential public services if the children of a nation are going to have their rights, which is the right to a public education. Three or four years ago, three or four years ago, Christopher Pine, when he was the Minister for Education, said when it comes to education policy, he said two things. The first thing he said was that private education is in the coalition government's DNA. Now, I'm not quite sure what that means, um, whether it gets injected in or whether it's there to start <laughs> with or, 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 <clears throat> or, 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 or whether it passes through like vitamin C. Or it's an implant like the Borg. Yes, well, it may be that most of them haven't got a clue about the benefits of public education because they, a lot of our politicians who have proved themselves so extraordinarily inefficient and almost stupid in, in administering this country for a census, uh, they are the products of a private school system. Mm, indeed. The second thing he said, and it was a very fundamental thing, and I, I, remember, I remember very clearly him saying it, he said that, well, we need to improve schools and giving schools more money is not going to help... <laughs> Um, well, that's arguable in the extreme. Um, so he said, giving schools more money isn't going to help. You might come back to why that's wrong and why, but, in, but indeed, why he was led to say it, say it in the first place. But then he said, what what we need is is we need more choice, we need more freedom, and we need more autonomy because that way schools can compete with each other. And then he said the killer phrase for me, the killer phrase that means the man is actually not responsible. I mean, people talk about the pub test. Well, you can have the pub test in terms of things, but you've got to be drunk to believe him if you're in the pub. When he said, and I quote, and competition is always good. But what we found from the Western Australian data is that if you, if you are competing with someone and you are starting ahead of the curve, you've got the head start. If you are competing with someone and you're starting behind the curve, you will fall back and fall back and fall back. Because competition in an educational sense in Australia for some time, and I think it's a tragedy this is the case, is not an even race. If you are running a 100 metres dash and you put one child 50 metres down the track and say, you can start there, you're ahead of the curve, and you take another child and you put them 150 metres behind and say, now you race each other, well, that's competition, certainly, Christopher Pine. That's competition, certainly, Mr Birmingham. That's competition, but it's, but it's not always good 
because the child who is starting from behind for all sorts of socioeconomic reasons, which again, fundamentally, I think, is a disgrace that in Australia we have to talk about the difference in children's potentials and outcomes based upon the income of their parents in the first place. And I know Trevor Cobalt, all the wonderful work he does in terms of supporting state schools, but he does make the assumption that if you start behind, then you'll finish behind. And I think that assumption needs to be challenged in the first place, certainly by federal government. But when Christopher Pine said, when it comes to education funding, competition is always good, um, he's missed the point. And it's a very sad thing. And the people of Australia have worked up, well, basically woken up to this. Because as things are likely to get worse there'll be a lot of people who are currently ahead of the curve that will start falling back. And when they fall back, they'll find that there's nothing there to catch them. And they will scream and shout, as the aspirational middle classes will want to do. And when they get there, they'll say, but it's not fair. And all the dogs can say is, yes, yes, we know. We've been telling you. And um, this is not the you know, Defence of Government Schools I Told You So program, but we have been saying the same thing, very simple thing, for all these years which is that you should not give money to private schools if you are a government of any sort. If you're a council, if you're a state government, if you're a federal government, you should not segregate children based upon their incomes or skin colour or religion or, or, or ethnicity. These are things that governments should not be paying money to do. And we've always said it. So if you want to have a mantra of choice and autonomy and freedom, then really, if you're a government, it is beholden upon you to be responsible in terms of the way you spend taxpayers' money so that everyone has a choice, everyone has freedom, and everyone has autonomy within a system. And I'll be talking about autonomy within a system um, after some music because I think it's quite interesting because all of these facts and figures that are coming out of Western Australia come from what we now have called the NAPLAN. So now all the economists are happy because a product has been commodified and there's enough numbers that go on to children that we can talk about these things. Mm. And as you can tell from the, from the tone of my voice, assessing children, assessing children across a nation is a double-edged sword. But let's have some, let's have some water music, something to calm us down by George uh, Frederick Handel. <laughs>
Well, isn't that lovely? So I, I like it. I, I hope you do too. Um, yes, you're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial. And um, you can, if you're interested in what we're talking about, please, please get on the www's and type in adogs.info, that is www.adogs.info, and you can see all the press releases and the work and the research that we've done over the years and the decades and indeed almost half century, because that's how long it's taken to defend government schools. And as... um. As, as Jean was saying before, we're now in the end game and there is only one possible solution for the children of Australia and that is to fully support a public education system for this country because that's what Singapore is doing, that's what China's doing, that's what Vietnam's doing, that's what the Philippines are doing, that's what Malaysia's doing, that's what Finland's doing, that's what Germany's doing, that's what all the sensible countries are doing. But not the UK or the United States and we're insisting still on following their strange theological views and their mythology. Indeed. But let's go back to what I was talking about before in terms of the double-edged sword of assessment. There's been a wonderful book, and I certainly do recommend it, written by Lucy Clark. It's only been written this year, and it's called Beautiful Failures, How the Quest for Success is Harming Our Children, and it's published by Penguin Random House. Um, in a review of this book, again by uh, Mr. Mr. Shepherd and um, Mr. Oh, sorry, it's not Mr. Shepherd, it's Chris Bonner. In a review of this book, I think it's worth pointing out because the book itself is quite fascinating. And it's pointed out that you may not have noticed, but in the past decade, has seen mounting criticisms of schools. Not the regular panics about test results and homework and curriculum and standards and student behaviour and all the rest of it has been around since Socrates. Actually, it's been around since, yes, before Socrates. And Plato had something to say about it as well, although he was about the same time. Anyway, no, the criticism of schools is targeting the way schools are excessively moulded and driven by these things at the expense of student engagement in learning. Critics point to an increasing number of students who no longer, if, even if they ever did, respond to the way we do schools. As Lucy Clark illustrates, this shows up in alarming statistics about engagement, attendance and retention at school, mental health alongside no appreciable gains in levels of achievement. Now, according to the measures that we value, uh, too many are failing at enormous cost to themselves and indeed at an enormous cost to the whole community. Now, official figures usually underestimate these problems and they don't tell stories of the young people who end up being collateral damage in the production line of school which, with some exceptions and despite the best efforts of teachers, still have much in common with schools a hundred years ago. Lucy Clark certainly tells the stories of more. She cites poll findings which point to 50% of Year 12 students are disengaged at school. And the Mitchell Institute research shows that 26% of students fail to finish school or a vocational equivalent. That's one in four. An equal percentage of students show symptoms of mental illness. That's again one in four. Now Clark pins it down to what schools do and what the system does to kids. We turn them through a system, she says, that demands compliance and conformity. Uh, many are opting out of the competition or struggling to keep up. Beautiful Failures is her plea for all this to change. 
a plea triggered by her daughter's experience at school. But educators should not rush to dismiss this as heartstring stuff. Clark has done her homework and considerable footwork. She details the, that the critics, such as Sir Ken Robinson and Pussy Solberg, are saying about mainstream schooling. She has visited schools that make a difference against the odds, and in many cases in silent defiance of convention, but unproductive wisdom. Now, Beautiful Failures is a brave book, not least because she risks being written off as the parent of someone who didn't fit into the system, and get over it, schools serve most kids quite well. But the reality is that school students are very diverse and learn in equally diverse ways. The way schools are structured and externally doesn't suit all learners. Now let's face it, some are winners in our system, but too many are losers. Anecdotally, it's easy to argue about one third of our young people respond quite well and succeed in mainstream schooling, and we see their names and their schools up in lights every year. About one third learn how to play the game. They do reasonably well, but are compliant underachievers. And the remaining third, well, we're losing them. They're not responding to the way we do schools. They are not someone else's kids. The last third come from all socioeconomic levels and all manner of schools share the blame. Inevitably, Clark doesn't see the problem through this every set of eyes. Schools also work with constraints imposed by school authorities, universities, boards, parents, media and governments. This shouldn't be about making excuses, but it's hardly the most fertile ground for innovative strategies to reach out to the disengaged. Not only that... Over the last 30 years, schools have been increasingly forced to compete with each other to create what we would term quality. Lift all boats, apparently, and conform to any other free market cliché. Those who can respond by hunting for children and families who best achieve in mainstream schooling. The academic pressure cooker, with all its trappings, goes into overdrive. It is hardly surprising that those who don't fit this mould feel they are less valued. Regardless of their untested and ignored qualities, they become, as Clark describes, the talents lost, the beautiful failures. Strange. We talk a lot about funding and equity, as we should, but perhaps not properly catering for the diverse learning styles of our young people has created the biggest inequity of all. But recent years have seen schools and school systems start to respond, and a number of books have been written about apparent breakthroughs. Some are, frankly, better than others, but Lucy has tracked down some very authentic public and private school reformers. Big Picture Learning, to which um, uh, uh, Chris Bonner is actually connected, has a foot in both camps, and Cooks Hill Campus in Newcastle is a recent example of how personalised learning can form the core of a public school's purpose and design. I'm going to say that again. The Cook Hills Campus in Newcastle is a recent example of how personalised learning can form the core of a public school's purpose and design. Schools like this switch young people onto learning for life. It costs, and it's hard work, but the rewards are considerable. It remains a long-term task to turn around our institutionalised and entrenched framework to make school happen for all of our students. Beautiful failures shows us every reason why we should not delay. Now, that's the end of the review, but I would actually point one thing out before I leave this idea, because there is a myth 
and it's a very destructive myth. And the myth is the public school system, that which the dogs have defended all these decades, all these years, is somehow monolithic. Oh, and it's absolutely ridiculous that you know public schools aren't any good because they don't because you know they haven't got the money and they don't cater and the teachers don't care. This is the opposite of the truth. The public school system and the teachers and the people who work within it, and in, indeed back in the days the inspectors would actually work with the children who presented themselves at the school door to the best of their ability. Every public school organically becomes different and sometimes deeply exciting, deeply productive, deeply effective. And so people talk about choice and autonomy and power and control. In a state school, well administered, you can see the most extraordinary things in the way that teachers and communities and administrations can respond to the needs of the students. And people always say, oh, well, it's better to send your child to a private school because they've got more inverted commas, individual care, um, that's a myth. It is a myth. It might be a comforting myth if you wish to separate your child out from other children who you don't want your child to hang out with, but it is a myth. State schools, um, the most innovative stuff, the most extraordinary and creative teaching that I've ever seen, and I have had experience in all three sectors, has come from state schools who are faced with extraordinary challenges. And the only way you can deal with those challenges is to innovate and respond to the needs of the kids themselves. The problem with private schools, that particularly those who are religious schools and who want to play God, is that there is an assumption that you have to separate out the sheep from the goats. Mm. Unfortunately, religious schools don't allow God to do that. They want to play God. Um, and uh, so uh, they are the ones who are promoting this whole competition. But I want to talk about what's going on in America. Uh, with this personalised learning that they want to talk about, they put children in front of computers and have online learning. And um, we'll have a little bit of music before we go over to America and find out how there is rotting of the system going on in America that is comparable to what is going on in the TAFE sector here. Oh, <laughs> 
This whole talk about personalised learning and uh, the testing of children and so on and putting them in front of computers, uh, you've got an example of it up in the Northern Territory with Aboriginal children and Mr Pearson's academies. But over in America where you have the charter school movement, which is similar to the so-called independent school movement here, uh, on Diana Ravitch's uh, blog, this has appeared. In Ohio, there's a low-performing ECOT gets another $3 million. Uh, ECOT is the electronic classroom of tomorrow, where you put children in front of computers and I suppose they will end up uh, needing special education for autism. He writes... Three million of straight A state funds went to straight D F ECOT in 2014. What kind of twisted process was conjured up to permit the transfer of two billion nine hundred and fifty one thousand seven hundred and fifty five of straight A state funds to the electronic classroom of tomorrow man in two thousand fourteen? This disgraceful governmental malfeasance is an affront to Ohio taxpayers. I really like that expression. This disgraceful governmental malfeasance is an affront to Ohio taxpayers because here in Australia there is governmental malfeasance in regard to VET, which Robert will refer to shortly. The three million... uh, went to a business enterprise that has collected nearly a billion dollars from school districts but cannot verify that students are being engaged in learning for more than an average of one hour per day. So you've got an educational enterprise, which is a charter school, that can't prove that it gives more than one hour of computer time in the electronic classroom of tomorrow and they are collecting billions of dollars of taxpayers' money. The travesty of the electronic classroom of tomorrow saga is that state officials in charge of the State House may continue this colossal waste of tax money. As the August 19th Columbus Dispatch editorial suggests, the electronic classroom of tomorrow charter school appears to be running the clock out, hoping that the legislature will eventually permit online operators to collect funds merely on the basis of enrolment. So you get the enrolments and then you get the money. Well, that's been happening in Australia. There's nothing unusual about this. It's called governmental malfeasance in Ohio. Public school officials, educators and advocates should confront their legislative representatives and the governor on this matter. As well as that, there's another interesting article about parents across America who are warning about the misuse of ed tech in schools. You have, dear listeners, uh, these 
uh, enterprises, if you like, innovative enterprises, the sort of thing that Mr Turnbull would just love to give public money to, uh, that uh, set themselves up and uh, rot the system and get money from the taxpayers and they are not doing our children any service at all. Uh, and they have these testing procedures like the Pearson. I won't go into great deal, uh, great de- detail with that, but it's certainly worth reading. But I'd like to hand you back to Robert, who's going to tell you about Mr Birmingham's uh, announcement this last week on the VET matter. Malfeasance, let's call it for what it is. Indeed. Thank you very much, Jean. Yeah, here on the Dogs Program, we do research every week, as you are well aware if you're a regular listener, and we have been following the Vocational Education and Training, the VET processes that are going on in Australia, and the disgusting, it really is disgusting, uh, malfeasance. I'll call it fraud. I'll just call it fraud. I'll call it corruption, actually. And I'll explain why I call it corruption, because the whole thing's completely completely stuffed up. Now, Simon Birmingham, the Federal Education Minister responsible for the VET system, says he's going to smash the business model of shonky VET providers. He says fly-by-night private colleges with high dropout rates are set to lose access to taxpayer subsidies under a federal government plan to smash the business model of dodgy operators. Oh, note, note. They're going to, and he assumes it's happening, and money's going out right at the moment. I mean, he knows he's on a powder kick. He knows that the people of Australia, the businesses of Australia, the whole bit of Australia is going, what on earth are you doing? Now, the Turnbull government is also considering imposing limits on how much students can be loaned for particular vocational courses and restricting funding to courses with strong employment outcomes. So what he's saying is that left field courses, he says, with poor job prospects such as performing arts and art therapy are likely to be ruled ineligible for government funding. Oh, that's right. Let's just deculture our society. Why have have loans Mm. in the first place? Why have loans Uh, in the first place? These children of ours have the right to a fully funded, taxpayer funded, proper education in government facilities. Well, apparently he's going to overhaul it. Now, just by the way, there is a really good, efficient and not corrupt, effective and accountable system that exists in Australia for delivering of courses. It's called the TAFE system. It's called the TAFE system. It was just going along fine. Everyone was happy with it, but no, they had to privatise the damn thing. But is Birmingham saying, oh, look, we're going to go back to square one, back to support TAFE and then we'll look at this again later? No, he's not saying that. He's saying he's going to redesign the Labor's flawed, you see it's all political now, it's all Labor's fault, VET fee help scheme and will seek to smash the business models of anyone ripping off taxpayers. Okay, right, so how's he going to do that? Send them to Manus Island. Oh. <laughs> Let's not send anyone to Manus Island. <laughs> no, it's, right, yes. It makes That's me, a bad business yes, fault. No. That's a terrible it's, business It just model. seems like it's, it's the government's well, it's a really good. Well, it's a really good business model if you're Serco and you're taking government money to make sure these people don't, don't get looked at. Mm. Anyway, it's just it's just I'm thinking of the way Mr. Dutton keeps on telling me that he's going to smash the business model of the operators in Indonesia that put people on leaky boats. Well, he's going to smash the business model. And the reason he's smashing the business model is that the whole VET system started off at three hundred twenty-five million dollars. 
and then in three years leading up to 2013, turned into $3 billion of taxpayers' money. $3 billion. Do you know what? That's much more expensive than the TAFE system used to be, isn't it, Gene? Oh, yes, wonderful, efficient public provision of public service. Oh, no. So is Mr Birmingham going to go back to that? No. Here's his plan. This is what Mr Birmingham's going to do. He's going to, point one, He's going to find out which operators are sufficient and high quality and reputed to qualify for the subsidies. He's going to, point two, going to find out which courses are sufficiently likely to lead to employment and warrant government support. How's he going to three, do that? Three, three, yeah. He's going to find out how can student numbers be best controlled. What does he mean by that? I'm not, I'm not quite sure. I mean, you know, make, make sure there's fewer people getting education. I'm not sure. What is he going to do? He, and, hasn't got a, he hasn't got a bureaucracy that's funded And he's going to find to out, this. and the fourth point is he's going to find out what costs are reasonable for different courses. Now, Jean, you're right. Point four is what costs are reasonable and what numbers of students should be educated. He doesn't have a bureaucracy, so he can't answer those questions. So he's going to probably contract that out to someone. The second thing, he's going to find out which courses are sufficiently likely to lead to employment and warrant government support? That sounds like just cutting out a whole heap of courses that he doesn't like. Yeah. yeah, I mean, you can do a course in classical music, but you can't do a course in popular music because Mr. Birmingham doesn't like classical music. It doesn't like pop. I mean, what? Because it's his opinion. Because it's his opinion. That's because no he, way to run. Because he doesn't. He democracy. doesn't have anyone to advise him on this because he sacked them all as well. And yeah, where's I mean, there's, there's, there's just his qualifications <clears throat> to decide coming from? And Mr. Birmingham, if you're listening, and I really hope you are, do you know what? Do you know what a private college is? I'll tell you what a private college is. A private college is is a business that is for profit. It's a business for profit that is responsible not to you. It's not responsible to the students. It's not responsible to the people of Australia. It's responsible to its shareholders. And to act responsibly to your share, I mean, overseas, um, it could be here. It doesn't really matter because it's a for-profit company and its major responsibility is to its shareholders. Now, you set up four points. Okay. You're going to find out which organisations are nice organisations. If I'm a dodgy operator, if I'm a dodgy FEET provider and I have shareholders, then my job is to make myself appear of sufficient high quality. Because be- if I don't, if I don't, my shareholders won't be very happy. How high quality I actually am from the point of view of a for-profit training organisation, how high quality I actually am is of no concern to me. I might add that into a mission statement. Um, in terms of any, 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 any messages being delivered to shareholders to make everyone feel good. But functionally, as a for-profit private provider, how high quality I am is of much less important than how high quality I need to appear to be. And I can tell you right now, because you're getting lots of statistics in the media about what they call student satisfaction surveys. Now, what a student satisfaction survey is, if you get a high score on a student satisfaction survey. That means two things. The first thing is that the work that you were given wasn't very hard as a student, so therefore you're very satisfied. (laughs) And every time that you wanted to make sure that you passed and your teachers did things, either being helpful or otherwise, to make sure that you did, then you all of a sudden become a very satisfied student. 
Now, if you are going for a course which takes, in reality, two years to do, and your private provider says you can do this course in six months and spend less, well, spend the same amount of money, but do it in a quarter of the time, you're going to be a very satisfied student. And whenever you hear about the VET people defending their models, they always go to their student satisfaction surveys. And they say that that justifies them being regarded as wonderful education providers because their students are satisfied. Well, of course their students are satisfied because they're passing whether they do the work or not, and they're also making sure that the students, making sure that the students don't actually have to do as much work to pass a particular course, and that makes students very satisfied. <laughs> but of course, a lot of these um, dodgy places are also tied in to the whole question of student visas and getting uh, the permission to stay in Australia. Much less so now, Jean, but yes, I mean, and that's the problem because that's, that's where this all started, isn't it? That's where this all started 10 years ago. Private providers only taking students from overseas and then when the Labor government cracked down on that, started using the same principles for local students. And of course, because it was dodgy to start with, it hasn't improved and Birmingham is on a powder keg. And if he thinks that the dead hand of the market is going to save the system, he is failing <laughs> the pub test. He really is failing the pub test. Drunk or sober, it makes no sense to me. There is a wonderful system called the TAFE system, which wasn't costing as much and doing a particularly good job, but was very well regarded, immensely well respected, and underfunded at the same time. Put the money, put, put $3 billion into the TAFE sector... Australia will be, would be the world leader in vocational education in about three years, straight up. But no, 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 that because they the are... That possible policy for Mr Turnbull's innovation. Yes, because you can't, have inno- you can't have innovation without education, Mr Turnbull. Mm. Mr Bly, what's his name, Malcolm Bly Turnbull? Yeah, you can't have innovation unless you've got education. But anyway, we've come to the end of our program, the DOGS program, the Defenders of Government Schools. If you disagree with anything we've said, check out our website because we love a good argument over here. Check out our website at www.adogs.info. That's www.adogs.info. And if you're interested in what we've had to say, if you want to check up us and check our claims indeed, do the same thing on the website www.adogs.info. But you've been listening to the Defenders of Government Schools on 3CR Community Radio, 855 on the AM dial and on the WWWs and podcast and stuff. But until next week, it's bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe Hill last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I Him standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I ain't dead Says Joe, but I ain't dead The 
copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill. Went on to organize. Went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your hill. It's there you find. Sir.